There has been some confusion recently amongst evangelicals about the doctrine of the church. Some people have claimed that Anglican polity or governance is congregationalist. They say this as part of an attempt to justify the avoidance of heretical authorities beyond the level of the congregation. So if we wish, quite rightly, to distance ourselves from false teachers within the national or the diocesan church, we can easily do so, they say, because in Anglicanism, the visible church is really only the local congregation. So as uh, David Broughton Knox puts it, the visible church is the local church. As Article 19 of the 39 Articles says, it is only in the local congregation that the word of God is preached and the sacraments administered. It is only the assembled congregation that is visible. David Broughton Knox. Well, is this true? Well, it is true that the Church of England has never seen local parishes as merely lesser groupings of the faithful, subordinate to a bishop and a diocese, the real church. That's the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, as seen, for example, in Vatican II, which teaches that, I quote, the bishop is to be considered as the high priest of his flock, from whom the life in Christ of his faithful is in some way derived and dependent. Therefore, says Vatican II, all should hold in great esteem the liturgical life of the diocese centred around the bishop, especially in his cathedral church. They must be convinced that the preeminent manifestation of the church consists in the full active participation of all God's holy people in these liturgical celebrations, especially in the same Eucharist, in a single prayer at one altar at which there presides the bishop, surrounded by his college of priests and by his ministers. There have been attempts to read the official Anglican formularies as if they affirmed the same Episcopal diocesan focus. Paul Avis, for example, says that for Anglican ecclesiology, the congregation, in the strict sense, is the diocese. Yet the parish is truly at the heart of the Church of England. And as Bishop Rod Thomas has said, within evangelicalism, the local church has always been seen as the primary unit. However, that does not mean that for Anglican evangelicals, the parish or local congregation is all. Neither does it mean that the bishop or the diocese is nothing, merely a temporal construct. Nevertheless, the claim that some have made is that Article 19 of the 39 articles in our Book of Common Prayer supports the idea that Anglican polity is congregationalist and that this justifies us separating from a church if some within it are unorthodox. Since many evangelical Anglicans still consider the articles to be authoritative, their inspiration and guidance under God for ministry today, this is a very significant claim. Whether it is true or not, 
is of importance both to Anglicans of all stripes and to other Anglican, uh, other evangelical or organizations and denominations, which often trace their lineage back to disagreements over church polity. Now, it says in Article 19 that the visible Church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men. So, says David Broughton Knox, Article 19 defines the visible church in terms of a worshipping congregation. He then takes certain New Testament examples of the use of the Greek word ecclesia, church, meaning a physical localised gathering, and imports that meaning into Article 19, concluding that Article 19 must be speaking of local manifestations of Christ's church. This is why, as Chase Kuhn has concluded, Knox believed that local church unity is the only earthly unity to be sought, as the local church is the only earthly ecclesial reality. But does Article 19 mean that a particular local congregation is the church? That the visible church is any individual congregation of faithful people? I want to contend in this talk that this is not how the article would have been understood when it was written and is not how it has been historically understood by those who take the time to read it against its historical background. The article continues, the visible Church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men in which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments be duly administered according to Christ's ordinance in all those things that of necessity are requisite to the same. It then talks about some visible churches which have fallen short of this ideal standard. Yet it does not talk about worship gatherings in specific buildings or even small group meetings. What does it say? It says, as the Church of Jerusalem, Alexandria and Antioch have erred, so also the Church of Rome hath erred, not only in their living and manner of ceremonies, but also in matters of faith. So the article is talking about the essential elements or marks of the visible church, but not just in a local parish sense. The church is a group of faithful Christians with the word of God and the sacraments duly ministered and is not defined, it says here, by its relationship to a particular errant and fallible authority structure. Churches err and go astray in their understanding of the faith, of ceremonies and of Christian living. Notice they deviate from the word of God when they do that. It doesn't say here that bishops or cathedrals are necessary for there to be a church. But equally, it is not making the point that every individual congregation is an island entire of itself either. And that church is only a local assembly of people. It cannot be saying that. After all, in the context of this article itself, the word church is used of four entities far larger 
than a parish gathering. The Church of Rome, that is. The Roman Catholic Church being just one of those. In order to establish, therefore, a more historically accurate understanding of what Article 19 means, let's examine the word congregation as it was used in the 16th and 17th centuries, particularly in English theological writing. You see, we can't just import the meaning today into what it meant in 16th and 17th century English theological writing. Then I want to place this in the context of Reformation-era debates about ecclesiology, as seen in the writings of Roman Catholics, such as John Eck and Cardinal Bellarmine, as well as Martin Luther, the Augsburg Confession and others, and statements that are parallel on the church, things that are parallel to Article 19 made by um, people like Martin Bucer, Heinrich Bullinger, Huldrych Zwingli, John Calvin, Peter Marta Vermeili, and others, and also the Reformed Confessions. I want to be aware of the background of evangelical discussions of the structure and governance of the church and the meaning of the 39 articles from the early modern period with people like Thomas Rogers, Richard Hooker, Thomas Hooker, the Reformation uh, proposed changes in canon law, the Reformatio Legum Ecclesiasticarum, as well as looking at recent evangelical reflections from a variety of evangelical authors. Doing this will hopefully help us um, stop saying silly things about Article 19 and Anglican ecclesiology, which are just not supported by the facts. So let's dive in. The meaning of congregation. Well, it's taken by some people as obvious that Article 19 must be speaking about a local group of believers. Alan Stibbs, for example, said that at its simplest, the description of visible church can apply for me only to a gathering whose local meeting together I personally observe. It is noteworthy, he says, that in Article 19, the term visible church is limited to this meaning, that is, to a congregation meeting in a particular place. In fact, though, the first part of the article does not mention a meeting in a particular place at all, does it? And in the historical context of Article 19, the word congregation was not used, as a modern reader might imagine, it wasn't used exclusively of a small local gathering of Christians. In English, during the 16th and 17th centuries, especially against its Latin intellectual background, this term could be used not simply of local uh, gatherings or meetings, but of the whole visible church on earth. Theologians of that period routinely use the word congregation to refer to the entire church militant or triumphant. The entire church on earth or the entire church on earth and in heaven. Paying due attention to the word in its historical and polemical context shows that that is its clear meaning in Article 19. Let's examine the way that these things were spoken of by authoritative writers 
during the Reformation to understand Article 19 in its context. For example, in the 13 Articles of 1538, Thomas Cranmer stated that in the scriptures, the word church in Latin ecclesia has two main meanings apart from others, one of which means the congregation of all the saints and true believers who really believe in Christ, the head, and are sanctified by his spirit. The second meaning, says Cranmer, is that of the congregation of all who are baptised in Christ, who have not openly denied him, nor been lawfully and by his word excommunicated. So according to Cranmer here, the visible church, the congregation of all those who are baptised in Christ, is discerned by the proclamation of the gospel and the fellowship of the sacraments. This is the Catholic and Apostolic Church, which is not limited to the See of Rome or of any other church, but which is, he says, um, all the churches of Christendom, which together make up the one Catholic Church. So for Cranmer, this visible congregation includes all the churches of Christendom, as far as he is concerned. Uh, now, the official uh, Anglican homily for uh, Whit Sunday, you can find the homilies in a volume like this, edited by Gerald Bray. The official Anglican homily for Whit Sunday, probably written by the reformer John Jewell, uh, 1522 to 1571, similarly preaches on this subject that the true church is a universal congregation or fellowship of God's faithful and elect people. Elsewhere, Jewell calls it the company or congregation and fellowship of those who profess the name of Christ. The Edwardian prayer books, which were published around the same time as uh, the articles and around the same time as Jewell and the homilies, uh, also use the word congregation for church in general, not simply this congregation which is here assembled, but also the great mystery which is Christ and the congregation, as it says, alluding to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. The influential catechism of Alexander Knoll, 1506 to 1602, the dean of St Paul's Cathedral, also makes it clear that the word ecclesia meant in the English of that time congregation. Yet Noel adds to this that into this congregation God did incorporate an infinite multitude of men. Furthermore, Noel goes on, quote, the church is the body of the Christian commonweal, that is, the universal number and fellowship of all the faithful, whom God, through Christ, hath before all beginning of time appointed to everlasting life. This company or assembly or congregation of the godly is not pent up in any certain place or time, but it containeth and comprises the universal number of the faithful. The visible church is therefore that congregation of men or assembly in which the word of God and the sacraments are purely and sincerely retained. So Noel is not talking about a congregation that is simply local in one place, but a worldwide visible 
church Catholic. This was a common, common use of the word. Even in the works of a congregationalist like John Owen into the 17th century. John Owen, 1616 to 1683, would also use the word congregation to refer to the whole visible church of the time. And not just to a single gathering or meeting in a local place. In Latin, the word congregatio meant a union, a society or association of various sorts. Although the word used in the Latin edition of the 39 articles is not congregatio anyway. It's coitus, another general word for a coming together of some sort, a conjoining, yes, including of the sexual kind, or just for a company of some sort, a company of people. It was often used, that word coitus, um, to describe the whole visible church, such as in the 1604 canons of the Church of England, which exhorted ministers to pray for Christ's holy Catholic Church, that is, for the whole congregation, pro universo coitu, of Christian people dispersed throughout the whole world. The particular point being made in Article 19 is therefore not about the local church, but about what defines the visible church as a whole. It is defined by confession or connection, practice or pope, leadership or laity. Which is it? Article 19 will tell us. The word congregation was much employed by uh, writers such as William Tyndale and other English reformers to translate this Greek word, biblical Greek word, ecclesia. Yet they did not do this in order to restrict the word to a local setting. No, they did it actually to widen its meaning from that which was current at the time. Their point in doing this was that the church is not just the Roman clergy under the Pope. So as Tyndale says, the word church, quote, signifies a congregation, a multitude or a company gathered together in one of all degrees of people. Wherefore, inasmuch as the clergy had appropriated unto themselves the term that of right is common unto all the whole congregation of them that believe in Christ, therefore, in the translation of the New Testament, where I found the word ecclesia, I interpreted it by this word congregation. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> This is also why the Oxford English Dictionary specifically gives Article 19's use of the word congregation as an example under its definition of congregation, quote, in the sense of the whole body of the faithful, the Church of Christ as a whole, as distinct from the contemporary clericalist connotations or the narrower parochial sense. We can glimpse something of the essential backgrounds to Article 19 in the work of Luther's Roman Catholic nemesis, John Eck, 1486 to 1543. Eck said that the church could not err. And it is clear, he said, 
that representatively the church is her prelates, the leaders gathered together. The church, he says, is shown to you in councils, in the apostolic see, that is in the papacy, in bishops and leaders of individual churches. The Protestant reformers objected to this definition of church. Martin Bootser, for example, thought of the church as the assembly or congregation of people of all places and times who are called to the universe unity of the profession of one and the same faith, of doctrine and of the sacraments of Christ. For the reformers, the church is all those who believe in Christ, not just the clergy, those who are sometimes even loosely now described as entering the church. Similarly, the reformer Ulrich Zwingli, 1484 to 1531, said, quote, the visible church is not the Roman pontiff and the rest of them that wear the tiara, but all throughout the whole world who have enrolled themselves under Christ through baptism. All who believe in Christ are the church, which is a global connection of faithful, godly people living under the word of God and biblically ordered leadership. This is what the reformers were getting at with their use of the word congregation in these contexts. Martin Luther, incidentally, in the same way, used the German word Gemeinde instead of Kirche sometimes to make the same sort of point. So we might gloss Article 19 saying the visible church of Christ is not just the clergy and the clerical hierarchy, but a worldwide congregation of faithful people. That's what it's saying. Now, a Roman Catholic ecclesiology during the Reformation was keen to stress that for there to be a church, it had to actually gather and meet at some point. This it did in its prelates, the Pope, the bishops, the cardinals. Those who take a more congregationalist approach also presume that since the Greek word ecclesia means a gathering, there must be a particular time and place where the church gathers. Broughton Knox, for example, thought that, quote, the earthly church is incapable of Catholicity. The earthly church is incapable of Catholicity as a Catholic gathering cannot and does not occur. This is why, for him, the visible church can only really be a local congregation because an ecclesia has to be something which physically meets. Melvin Tinker and Nathan Buttery in their book on the church also quote Article 19 as if it was teaching their view, this view, and they claim that a denomination cannot be a church because it is not <clears throat> because it is not a gathering. Church is nothing more or less than a gathering of people. If there is no gathering, they tell us, then by definition there is no church. The Protestant reformers, on the other hand, disagreed with that Roman Catholic assumption. They often stressed that
that there does not need to be a single meeting in one location this side of glory for there to be something called the church on earth. So John Calvin says, for example, <clears throat> the church universal is a multitude gathered from all nations. And yet at the same time, it is not gathered in one place, but is divided and dispersed in separate places. The church is separated. Martin Butzer said of the whole visible church on earth that it is never gathered in one place, nor does it assemble at the same time. Zwingli confessed, this church, therefore, is visible, albeit it does not assemble in this world. Similarly, Henry Bullinger, 1504 to 1575, says it is not possible that the universal church throughout the whole world should assemble and come together. But this is not a problem for the reformers, because Christ is the head of the church and he is present with it at all times and in all places. And the name Ecclesia did not have to imply for them a specific physical gathering on earth. It is clear then that this reading of Article 19 chimes in perfectly with other Reformation era definitions of the church. So in the Lutheran Augsburg Confession, chapter seven, we're told that the church is not defined by its hierarchy or its allegiance to the Pope and cardinals, but by its profession of faith. I quote. The church is the congregation of saints in which the gospel is purely taught and the sacraments are correctly administered. For the true unity of the church, it is enough to agree about the doctrine of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. It is not necessary that human traditions, that is, rites or ceremonies instituted by men, should be the same everywhere, in all gatherings, for there still to be a church. Outward conformity to those same external practices is not the essence of church unity, which is properly confessional. It is based on what we believe, the truth that we confess. Saying that the church is the congregation of the saints, as the Augsburg Confession does, doesn't, of course, make Lutherans into congregationalists in terms of their polity. That is not how Lutheranism organised itself. Article 28 of the Augsburg Confession talks in detail about the authority of bishops, which is based on their preaching of the word and refutation of error. While it says bishops have no authority to decree anything against the gospel and should not burden the church with traditions and ceremonies which ensnare people's consciences, they can exercise certain powers given to them by the civil power to hear certain cases of marriage law or tithing, for example. What's more, bishops do, according to the Lutherans, have by their spiritual authority the right to exclude people from the communion of the church. The Lutheran confession is also very careful to say, quote, it is not our intention to take oversight away from the bishops. That was never the intention of the framers of the Augsburg Confession in using the word congregation 
to describe the visible church. Structure of the church. Well, the fact that the Church of England's Article 19 says that the church is a congregation in which the word of God is purely preached does not mean that every gathering to hear God's word is therefore a church. It doesn't say that. It doesn't mean that. It is not saying that church only exists when midweek small groups assemble or Sunday morning congregations get together either. The point about the church being a congregation is that it is not multiple congregations, but a single spiritual entity. As Thomas Rogers explained in the first ever commentary on the 39 articles, for the visible church is not many congregations, but one company of the faithful. There may be many particular churches within this, he says, such as the Greek church or the English church, as the sea has many rivers and arms branching out from it. But we are one body in Christ, he says, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. As Article 19 puts it, the visible church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men, not plural congregations in parishes. As the Anglican theologian Richard Hooker, 1554 to 1600, describes it, the church is a society and it exists regardless of whether it gathers or not. He explains, Richard Hooker, that the church is always a visible society of men, not an assembly, but a society. For although the name of the church be given to Christian assemblies, yet assemblies properly are rather things that belong to a church. Men are assembled for performance of public actions, which actions being ended, the assembly dissolves itself and is no longer in being. Whereas the church, which was assembled, does no less continue afterwards than before. So in the wider context of the articles and the prayer book in, uh, in which those articles are found, it is extremely clear that they do not consider the congregation to be the highest tribunal to which an aggrieved party may appeal, which is what the Congregationalist theologian Thomas Hooker claimed. For example, why else do the articles in here talk about the jurisdiction of the monarch over the church? in Article 37. Why else do they talk about archbishops and bishops, priests and deacons in Articles 32 and 36? Why else does the prayer book consecrate bishops and archbishops to preach, to drive away erroneous doctrine and to administer discipline across their dioceses in accordance with the canon law of the church? Articles 33 and 34 speak about the church and excommunication. And in here, excommunication is reserved to bishops, not to local gatherings. It also talks about particular national churches having authority to ordain, change and abolish rites and ceremonies, which has never been a power given to each parish meeting within Anglican polity. So, 
within their own context, the articles cannot be singling out the local parish assembly in Article 19 as self-contained and supreme, apart from the wider church, unless, of course, they're blatantly self-contradictory. More likely, that claim that Anglicanism is somehow congregationalist, but more likely that claim only arises because a recent narrowly congregationalist definition of the word congregation has anachronistically been read back into the articles and unnaturally imposed upon them. Now, the proposed uh, Reformation of Church Law, uh, here it is, a big fat volume, the Reformation of Church Law, the Reformatio Legum Ecclesiasticarum, um, which is contemporary with the 39 articles and drafted by Thomas Cranmer, Peter Marta Vermeili and other reformers, is also really clear on this subject. It explains the system of church government and discipline which the reformers intended to place alongside the 39 articles and the Book of Common Prayer. And here's what the Reformatio Legum Ecclesiasticarum says. It says, bishops, because they hold the chief place among the other ministers of the church, must therefore govern and pastor the lower orders of the clergy, as well as the whole people of God, with sound doctrine, sober authority and wise counsel. Not indeed to lord it over them, not to lord it over their faith, but that they may prove themselves to be true servants of the servants of God. And they shall know, these bishops, that the government or authority and ecclesiastical jurisdiction has been specially entrusted to them for no other reason than that by their ministry and hard work or dedication, as many people as possible may be made rich in or joined to Christ. That's the purpose of Episcopal authority. The, uh, the Reformation of Church Law also speaks about the obedience to be shown to such bishops to foster harmony and for the sake of Christian discipline. Indeed, Cranmer's committee outlined the tasks of a bishop as these. Passing on sound doctrine, conferring holy orders and instituting ministers to benefices, as well as removing those who are unworthy, settling complaints and quarrels between ministers and their churches, correcting vices by ecclesiastical censures and excommunicating persistent offenders, as well as visiting the whole diocese regularly, holding synods and, of course, confirming people. The ongoing need to reform the church. Well, it's very clear from all this that according to the 16th century Protestant reformers, a local congregation is not the highest tribunal in Anglican polity nor the only aspect of the visible church that really matters. Some people, evangelicals amongst them, may later have taken the view that Anglican polity is biblically mistaken and incorrect on this point, but actually even then they were only ever a minority, even amongst the Puritans. Maybe only about 20% at best? 
Puritans, of course, could be categorised as Episcopalian in favour of bishops, as Presbyterian in favour of the Presbyterian system, or as independent or congregationalist in their views of polity. They didn't have one view. There is no single Puritan view on this subject. There were representatives of all three of those categories at the Westminster Assembly, for example. The idea of congregational independency was something which would take root particularly among certain American colonists in the 17th century. As Michael Winship has written of these most recently, the novel church establishment which they created called Congregationalism had a great many unresolved Puritan conflicts built into it that required slow and painful sorting out. Congregationalism's conflicts spilled back into England. There, only relatively small numbers of Puritans adopted Congregationalism, while other Puritans no less intensely opposed it. The wound, says Winship, the wound which Congregationalism created in English Puritanism would never heal, and it helped ensure that Puritan efforts to bring about Reformation in England failed. Later on, he also describes how Congregationalism could be a bitter, divisive disappointment which led to the failure and collapse of the Puritan Reformation. And yet, Reformation there must always be in accordance with God's word. According to the uh, Reformatio Legum Ecclesiasticarum, a crisis in church leadership requires urgent attention. Just as the conditions of the state is ruined when it is governed by people who are stupid, demanding and burning with ambition, it says, and how right it is to say that, so in these times the Church of God is struggling since it is committed to the care of those who are totally incompetent to assume so important a task. In which respect, the Church has fallen very far short indeed of those rules of the blessed Paul, which he prescribed to Timothy and to Titus. Therefore, we must find an appropriate remedy for so serious a plague on our churches. One of the roles of a bishop, therefore, is to train up effective, godly ministers. In particular, a bishop should also, it says, appoint people to make up for the defects and negligence of the parish priests when need be. This is the problem today. This is the problem today just as it was then. There are defects in the church and some are negligent in their duties when it comes to preaching and living in accordance with the true profession of the gospel, the Protestant Reformed religion. Some are even deliberately undermining that religion, despite having publicly pledged their loyalty to it at their ordinations and consecrations. It is necessary, therefore, manfully to fight under Christ's banner against sin, the world and the devil, as the Book of Common Prayer puts it. Manfully to fight under Christ's banner against sin, the world and the devil. It is impossible to truly reform and renew the church as we would like to 
It's impossible to do that if Anglican evangelicals have a faulty understanding of what Anglican polity actually is and always has been. Article 19 was not intended to speak to debates about church governance primarily. Its main aim was to describe what a true church looks like. The article begins by saying, the visible church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men in which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments be duly ministered according to Christ's ordinance in all those things that are necessary and requisite to the same. This is framed in a very similar way to a number of very contemporary statements about what the church is. Both Roman Catholics and Protestants spoke in very similar terms about the visible church and what it is. So Article 19 is intended to speak into that polemical context. It's only by seeing it in that light that we can make sense of the particular truths that Article 19 is trying to confess. Now, in my published article on this topic, I look at this point um, at, a, at the number of uh, early modern doctrines of the church, Roman Catholic, Lutheran and Reformed. You can chase up all those details, if you like, in the Evangelical Quarterly. Um, for the last few minutes of this talk, though, I want to just look at the Reformation Anglican view of the marks of the church. And then we'll conclude with some implications and applications of all of this for us today. So look, let's look at the doctrine of the church as the Anglicans um, in the 16th century contemporary with the article would have talked about uh, to see what Article 19 is getting at. Well, we've seen that Article 19 has got several things to say. The visible church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men in which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments be duly ministered according to Christ's ordinance in all those things that are necessary and requisite to the same. The visible church is a group, it says, called out from and differentiated from the world. Both Bellamine and Bullinger would both also say something like that. As the Anglican apologist Richard Field, 1561 to 1616, put it, the church is the multitude and number of those whom almighty God severeth from the rest of the world by the work of his grace. We are severed from the world by the work of his grace. And that's what makes us the church. So all Englishmen are not necessarily Christians, only those who are faithful. The church is a certain group called out or set apart from the world. Going back to uh, the, the homilies again, to the second book of homilies, authorised in Article 35 as containing godly and wholesome doctrine, the homily defines three specific marks of the church. The fellowship of the elect hath always three notes or marks whereby it is known, says Bishop Jewell in this sermon. What are they? Well, pure and sound doctrine, the sacraments ministered according to Christ's holy institution and the right use of ecclesiastical discipline. 
Bishop John Ponnet, 1516-1556, wrote the most important catechism officially authorised by Edward VI, uh, to which the publication of the original 42 articles of religion were appended. Ponnet, uh, Bishop Ponnet, was essentially the mouthpiece of Cranmer's circle of evangelical reformers, as the Australian scholar of this period, Mark Ernge, has clearly demonstrated. Ponnet gave us basically a commentary on the doctrine of the articles. His official catechism translate the Greek, translates the Greek ecclesia as congregation or assembly and speaks about that congregation which thou callest a kingdom or commonweal of Christians. Ponnet's catechism asks how the true church may severally and plainly be known asunder from each other fellowship of men. How can you tell the church from another church, another uh, another kind of gathering? Well, the answer is, quote, that congregation is nothing else but a certain multitude of men, which, wheresoever they be, profess the pure and upright learning of Christ, and that in such sort as it is faithfully set forth in the Holy Testament by the evangelists and apostles, which in all points are governed and ruled by the laws and statutes of their king and high bishop Christ in the bond of charity, which use his holy mysteries, which uses holy mysteries that are commonly called sacraments with such pureness and simplicity as touching their nature and substance as the apostles of Christ used and left behind in their writing. So you see that for the English reformers standing behind Article 19, the church is a certain collection of people distinguishable from the world and from other kinds of groupings. Or as D.B. Knox rightly explains it, Article 19 gives the marks by which a Christian assembly may be distinguished from assemblies called for other purposes. Such a group confesses pure biblical doctrine and is governed by one king and pontiff, not the Bishop of Rome, but Christ. As the Reformatio Legum Ecclesiasticarum clearly put it, the error of those who want the universal church of the whole Christian world to be governed by the Bishop of Rome is intolerable. Why is it intolerable? Well, because the church is the company of all the faithful in which the Bible is sincerely taught and the sacraments are administered according to Christ's command. Thus we see that Article 19's definition of the church was designed and used by contemporaries as the answer to Rome's claim of universal sovereignty. It establishes that the Church of England does not need to be under the Pope's jurisdiction to be a true church. Now, Bishop Ponnet was also keen to look more deeply and consider not simply what distinguishes the church from the world, but what makes for a sound and healthy visible church. He says, the marks, therefore, of this church are, first, pure preaching of the gospel, then, brotherly love, out of which as members all of one body springeth goodwill of each to another. Thirdly, upright and uncorrupted use of the Lord's sacraments, according to the ordinance of the gospel. 
Last of all, brotherly correction and excommunication, or banishing those out of the church that will not amend their lives. This mark the Holy Fathers termed discipline. So you see that for Ponnet, the marks are pure preaching, brotherly love, uncorrupted use of the sacraments and proper church discipline. The noteworthy addition to the usual list you find at the time is brotherly love. How the church lives is as important as what it confesses for this Anglican bishop, standing as he does in the wider reformed tradition, which would have been very comfortable with that assertion. This is why, if you look on in Article 19, it is keen to point out that, as the Church of Jerusalem, Alexandria and Antioch have erred, so also the Church of Rome hath erred, not only in their living and manner of ceremonies, but also in matters of faith. Note there this really important point. Errors in the manner of living are hugely important, not only in their lack of general godliness, but also perhaps specifically that the Roman Catholic Church was enforcing unbiblical celibacy on clergy. The Anglican doctrine of the church naturally agrees on this point with continental reformers, that godliness, manner of life, is an essential mark of the church. The church is a fellowship of faithful people, faithful in what they believe and trust in Christ and confess his truth. The article recognises and laments the other churches who have erred in their manner of living. So clearly a biblical godly lifestyle is an important part of what it means to be a true church in the Anglican definition of church. It's also worth pointing out that another aspect of contemporary evangelical reflection on the church is also present in the Anglican articles. It says, in the church the sacraments are to be duly ministered according to Christ's ordinance in all those things that of necessity are requisite to the same. What that means is fleshed out in further articles. It means, for example, not ordaining rites and ceremonies that are contrary to God's word written. You can find this in Article 20. It means having lawfully called and consecrated priests, uh, preachers and ministers. That's Article 23 and Article 36. Those ministers may be married, Article 32, and must speak in a language understood by the people, Article 24. Sacraments duly ministered also means properly using the sacraments for the purpose that they were instituted for, Article 25, Article 28, including baptising infants, which is most agreeable with the institution of Christ according to Article 27. And ministers must give communion in both kinds to all Christians, Article 30. It also means the ministers who administer the sacraments must be subject to discipline and removal if they fall short, Article 26. And they must also discipline others, Article 33, while not offending against the common order of the church, 
in their attitude towards traditions which are in themselves not repugnant to the Bible. Article 34. So you see, Article 19 is fleshed out in those other articles and tells us what it means by in those things that are requisite and necessary for the proper due administration of the sacraments. So Anglican polity recognises as an essential part of church life both the ordering and disciplining of ministers and the encouragement of a godly life amongst all, with excommunication where necessary. This may not be spelled out as such in just one single article, but the rest of the articles make the place of such discipline abundantly clear. They recognise a duly uh, ordained ministry as a key component of biblically ordered church and congregation, just as Luther and Bootser and the others did, while also being very clear that the Bishop of Rome hath no jurisdiction in this realm of England, Article 37. That is contrary to the Roman Catholic definition and doctrine of the church, which said, yes, you have to have right doctrine. Yes, you have to have the sacraments properly administered, but you must also be under the Pope. No, says the articles, the Bishop of Rome has no jurisdiction in this realm of England. In fact, no specific bishop or archbishop can claim to be the head or unifying point of the visible church, according to Anglicanism. No bishop or archbishop can claim to be the head or unifying point of the church, of the visible church, in an Anglican definition. This is all reflected, of course, in uh, the Book of Common Prayer and the ordinal, uh, often bound with that, which are seen in this historical and polemical context as entirely, entirely Protestant and reformed in the way that they speak of and order the church. And so to conclude, according to the English reformers, what are the marks of an Anglican church, of a visible church, or maybe even of an Anglican denomination? What are the marks of that? Well, a group of people with lives marked by an intention to be faithful and loyal to the holy God in their lives, who listen to his word and celebrate his sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper in a disciplined and orderly way, under the properly constituted leadership of bishops, priests or presbyters and deacons. This is the kind of healthy congregation that Anglicans ought to be pioneering, establishing and securing today. It is the goal of all the reforming and renewing activities of evangelicals within the Church of England. But I want us to conclude today by just saying that this is a particular challenge for 10 kinds of people. Firstly, it's a challenge for those who think that there is no Anglican doctrine of the church and we can just make it up as we go along or who think that Anglican evangelicals have no ecclesiology. Anglican ecclesiology is biblically based, historically rooted and carefully defined. Second, those who think that Anglicanism is basically Roman Catholicism with a few twists. No, 
it is rather clearly a form of confessional Protestantism with a reformed flavour. Thirdly, this is a challenge for those who think that Article 19 says everything there is to say about Anglican polity. Now, what it says ought rather to be read in the historical context of the words and ideas it uses and in the context of the other articles and formularies from the time. As well as everything we've shown already, the pure word of God or the word purely preached must also, of course, include things like Trinitarian faith, the Trinity from Article 1, if the church is to be acknowledged as a congregation of the Christ who is portrayed in Scripture. It's not enough to just have a Bible reading and baptism to be counted as part of the true visible church. Certain doctrinal commitments are implied by the pure word of God. Fourth, this all challenges those who think that Anglicanism is essentially the same as Congregationalism. A misreading of the word congregation in Article 19, which we've shown to be false, might give this impression on an atomistic, ahistorical and superficial reading. Yet the article is not saying that the church is just the local meeting and there are clearly confessional and institutional accountability structures built into authentic Anglican polity over the minister. There's, there's a structure above the minister, the local church minister in a parish. Real congregationalists give significant constitutional powers to the whole congregation, the congregational meeting. It's precisely because Anglicans are not actually congregationalists that it is dangerous to ignore and sideline the wider accountability structures built into Anglicanism, since ministerial accountability can therefore be seemingly removed altogether. So what we could end up with is a strange kind of pseudo-congregationalism focused on monarchical presbyters who can potentially become tyrannical mini-popes, free from any restraint, either from above or from below. That, I'm afraid, would be fertile ground for spiritual and other forms of abuse. Fifthly, this all challenges those who think that church is defined purely institutionally. Clearly, the Anglican view is that a church is marked doctrinally, sacramentally and morally. Doctrinally, sacramentally and morally. And in the Reformation context, it clearly rejects an institutionalised view of the unity of the church that goes beyond merely good order. Popes of all kinds are to be resisted. Sixthly, what I have said also reminds us that holiness of life is a key part of being the church. Churches can err in their ceremonies, their doctrine, but also in their manner of life, which they represent to the world. To bless what God has not is as bad as teaching what God has not.
to institutionally tolerate an unholy lifestyle is as sacrilegious as trampling on the sacraments. Seventh, this challenges those who have forgotten that discipline is important for the maintenance of a true church. There must be systems and mechanisms for removing doctrinally or morally deficient ministers and those who are simply incompetent. Article 26 tells us this. For where the word of God is not purely taught, the sacraments will not be purely administered and people will err, not only in word, but eventually also in deed. Eight, the Anglican doctrine of the church rebukes those who do not celebrate the Lord's Supper in accordance with Christ's institution. As the articles say here, the sacraments were not ordained of Christ to be gazed upon or carried about, but that we should duly use them, eating bread, drinking wine, being baptised in water. And the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in particular was not by Christ's ordinance reserved for use later, carried about, lifted up or worshipped, according to Article 28. This is what it means to duly minister the sacraments as loyal Anglicans. Ninth, we're getting to the end. Ninth, this is also a challenge for those who do not believe in infant baptism, since to duly minister the sacraments according to Christ's ordinance in all those things that are of necessity requisite to the same must surely include infant baptism. Baptising the infants of believers, according to Article 27 in the prayer book, is most agreeable with the institution of Christ. To deny that is to deny a key part of the definition of Anglican polity. It may be a legitimate disagreement within the context of Christianity as a whole and amongst evangelicals in particular in general. Some of our best friends are Baptists. But a denial or downplaying of infant baptism cannot pretend to be Anglican according to the Articles. Finally, Reformation Anglican doctrine is also a challenge to those Anglicans today who think bishops and dioceses are not important, or that ordination is nothing, simply a prayer meeting which recognises Bible teachers. That is not a classically Protestant, or even... <laughs> Never mind an Anglican view. It's not a Protestant view. It's not a classical Anglican view, according to uh, the mainstream lines of uh, Reformed Protestant theology. If Anglicanism is defined confessionally, you can't think that about those things. There can be, of course, a church of disciples without duly ordained ministers. See Acts chapters 13 and 14. But duly ordained ministers are necessary for the church's well-being. See Acts 14.23 and also Titus 1 verse 5, for example. 
Now, episcopacy with bishops cannot be the only way to organise a true church because it's not an intrinsic part of the definition of a visible church, according to Article 19. As J.C. Ryle pointed out himself, a bishop in the Church of England in the 19th century, who said that. But clearly it is part, episcopacy is part of the Anglican doctrine of church polity as defined by the article and prayer book as a whole. As Bishop Donald Allister says, quote, the 16th century reformers who framed Article 19 did not mean that it is the only it is only the local congregation which may properly be called the church. The tendency among Anglican evangelicals today, he says, to understand church as including the local congregation, but excluding diocese, province or national church is not the whole truth. Is not the best way of understanding the biblical or historical evidence and is not authentically Anglican. Well, those are just 10 ways in which I think all of this challenges us today. No doubt there are other ways in which it challenges and applies as well. But this is just to sketch out some initial implications for today for those of us who are trying to recover a genuine Anglican ecclesiology or for those evangelicals of any denomination who are interested in what such a thing might look like. Thank you for listening.